We are finishing our sermon series this morning in the Gospel of Mark. We began this sermon series in November of 2020, and we've taken a few breaks here and there, but today is actually the 50th sermon from Mark's Gospel, which means we've averaged around 13 verses per sermon. Uh, we focused recently on the death of Jesus, and today we're going to be focusing on the resurrection of Jesus. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and this is the very inspired Word of God. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time that we've shared together in this gospel. I pray as a result that we have come to know Jesus better so that we might live for him and follow him more faithfully. I lift up our time today as we talk about the resurrection, that we would understand what it means for us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm just going to go verse by verse through our passage here, make a few comments as we go and a few applications as we go. And first of all, if you'll notice verse 1, it says, when the Sabbath was passed. So the Sabbath is Saturday. It's no longer Saturday. It's now Sunday. The Sabbath has passed. And some people wrestle with this. If he was crucified on Friday, Good Friday, and he was raised on Sunday, isn't that two days later? Doesn't that mean he rose on the second day and not the third day? How are we supposed to think about this? I do want to point out he was crucified on Friday because if you look back at Mark 15, verse 42, it says it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. So how are we supposed to think about this? Uh, the answer is we keep up with time differently than, than they did in, in this culture, in this time period. Our day begins at 12 a.m. So if it's 12.05 a.m., that's technically really early in the morning, not late at night, according to the way we keep time. Uh, the way that they keep time, the day begins uh, at sundown, you know, around 6 p.m. And so day one is Thursday, 6 p.m. to Friday, 6 p.m. That's, that's during that time period that Jesus is arrested and crucified. That's day one. Day two is Friday p.m. to Saturday, 6 p.m. That's when Jesus' body was in the tomb and no one visited because it was the Sabbath. And then Saturday, 6 p.m. to Sunday, 6 p.m. is the third day the Lord's Day, uh, Sunday, when, when we, Jesus was resurrected. Verse 1 tells us that they bought spices when the Sabbath was passed, so we get the sense that they bought them on Saturday evening. Once, once the Sabbath was passed, they bought them that evening and then took them the next morning to the tomb. We're given their names. Verse 1, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. This is the third time that Mark has mentioned them specifically by name. 
The first two times were in chapter 15, verse 40, and then verse 47, and now here's the third. So the first time, they were witnesses to his death. The second time, they are witnesses to his burial, and they know where the tomb is, and now they return to the tomb, and they will be witnesses of the empty tomb. Uh, But we're told their reason for going to the tomb. It's not to go celebrate Easter Sunday. Verse 1, they went so that they might go and anoint him. They're going to anoint a corpse. They're going to anoint and honor a body. And I think on one hand, we need to brag on these women. The the men are nowhere to be found, right? The men are not there at the crucifixion with the exception of John. The men are not there at the burial. The women are there. And the women are there to return and to honor the body. So I I think we need to, you know, uh, show show that they've done something well here that the men did not do. And it's right to, to, to recognize that. Uh, At the same time, I think we need to call them out a little bit, just as we should the disciples, that they should be going in anticipation of celebrating the resurrection. They shouldn't be going to honor a body. They should be going to celebrate a resurrection, just as the disciples should be. And the reason is because Jesus has told them repeatedly what's going to happen. In Mark's gospel, five times. And that's just Mark's gospel. I assume there were many other times. And he gave such specificity. For example, look with me back at Mark chapter 10, verses 33 through 34. Notice how specific Jesus is and how he's going to die. Mark 10, verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus is very specific of what's going to happen. And he's very specific that he's going to rise again. And yet none of the disciples are anticipating it at all. You might think they might think, well, remember he said something. Maybe we should just go and just see. They, they, They don't do this at all. They're not expecting it at all. They say, how could that possibly be? When he told them clearly what was going to happen. One answer, there are several answers. One answer is they, they're not gullible people who think miracles happen all the time. Even though they've been around Jesus for several years seeing miracles, they're not, they just don't expect this kind of thing to happen. It's very unusual. It's very unnatural. And sometimes people say, you know, these poor people, they were uneducated and they lived in a pre-scientific time and they just you know, bless their hearts. They believe in things like resurrections and we just know better today. We're just smarter than them. And they just gullible. And, you know, that's, that's why they came up with this stuff. And the answer is actually just the opposite. <laughs> you know, it's actually kind of jarring at how slow they were to even anticipate or believe that there might be a resurrection after Jesus told them there was going to be. And by the way, this points to the historical reality of it. How, how in the world, why in the world would you make up a story? And where Jesus is telling them all along the way, I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again. And he dies and all of his followers are hidden and they're not even potentially anticipating a resurrection. How do you explain that? I think the answer is because that's just how it happened. Right? No other, no other explanation. That's just how it happened. Uh, but they're going to the tomb to anoint the body. It, it, it was, it was a, a Jewish tradition of honoring the body. Uh, anointing the body. And you see Christianity, as Christianity grew and spread, this, this influence of honoring the body also grew with it. So across Europe, as Christianity spreads, they no longer burned bodies when they died. They started burying bodies when they died. 
So as Christianity spreads across Europe, guess what else spreads across Europe? Graveyards. Why? Because of this tradition of valuing the body. And the women are going to the tomb to honor and value the body. Look at verse 2. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So it's, it's now the first day of the week or Sunday. And this event that happened on this particular Sunday is so significant that Christians will change the day that they set aside for gathering together and meeting together and worship. And it'll, it'll happen on Sunday here forward. And today we follow this tradition of gathering on Sunday, what we call the Lord's Day. Why? Why Sunday? Why this day? And the answer is it goes back to this was the day when Jesus rose from the grave. Uh, we we're told it was early in the morning. We are told that the sun was rising. Verse 3, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They've got their spices. They've, they've purchased their spices. They're on the way to the tomb and it's, they know where to go. And it's almost like it hits them. How are we going to access the body? You know, we know that they know where the body is. They know where the tomb is. I assume they know they've seen the, the, the stone rolled in front of it. I don't know if they know about the guard or not. But they, they're, they, they, it kind of hits them. How are we going to access the body? And it's sort of like this. Well, we don't know, but we'll figure it out when we get there. So let's keep going. When we get there, we'll figure out a way. We will anoint the body. Verse 4, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. So when they arrived, they see the stone, which by the way was very large, rolled back and they no longer have the problem of the stone. That, that problem's been removed. But now they have a new problem on their hands. Uh, there, there's not going to be a body there that they're looking for. Look at verse 5. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. So they enter in, they see a man sitting there. Now some of the Gospels tell us it was an angel. For example, Matthew and John refer to him as an angel. They say, well, which one is it? I assume it's an angel who appears as a man. Right? And, and, and some of the Gospels will tell us there were two. Luke and John tell us there were two. And some people will say, well, wait a minute, that's an error. If Mark says one and they say two, that's an error. And the answer is, it would be an error if Mark said there was one and only one and no more than one and not two. And another one said there was two. That's a contradiction. But what we have here is not a contradiction. One of them says there was an angel and one of them says there were two angels. They're both true statements. There's some other differences that you'll see. Uh, for example, the number of women who were there. John only mentions one. Luke mentions five. Matthew mentions two. Mark mentions three. And that's okay. You put it all together. You can make sense of what happened. If you go in looking for contradictions, you're going to find what you think are contradictions. What you think are contradictions. If you go in saying, I trust that this is giving me one picture and I'm putting all the pieces of the puzzle to get the big picture and, and then I can harmonize these different accounts, you're going to be able to do that just fine. And that's what we're doing here. We're putting the different perspectives together and getting the big picture of what happened. And Matthew gives us a really interesting insight. His perspective is really interesting regarding this angel. Listen to Matthew 28, verses 2 through 4. Behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. 
So according to Matthew, an angel came down, an earthquake happens, the angel rolls back the tomb, the stone, and the, the guards are paralyzed. Now, is this when Jesus came out of the tomb? The text doesn't tell us. So therefore, we don't spend a bunch of time conjecturing about how did Jesus exit the tomb? Was it here? Was it a different ways at a different time? Right? We focus on the text. What does the text say? That's what we're supposed to know. That's what we're supposed to spend our time on. And the text says, verse 5, they were alarmed. Now, why would they be alarmed? Number one, they were expecting to find the body of Jesus. And it's not there. And, and, and John's gospel tells us Mary Magdalene became very upset. Someone has done something with the body. Who did this? Where is it? And so there's a, an alarm with that. But secondly, there's an alarm because they've just seen an angel. Matthew tells us it looks like lightning. How do you describe what an angel looks like? The Bible says it looks like lightning. Right? That's alarming. And by the way, every time someone encounters an angel, you almost always see the angel saying, don't be afraid. Right? Mary, don't be afraid. Joseph, don't be afraid. The shepherds, don't be afraid. Why? Because the appearance of this angel looking like lightning is apparently alarming. And so what do these... What does this angel say to the women? Verse 6, he said to them, do not be alarmed. All right? You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? Don't be alarmed. I know why you're here. You're here looking for the, the body of Jesus. And, and by the way, we, we, we see here an emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. He's a man just like us in every way, yet without sin. He's referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. The man from Nazareth, the one who grew up in kindergarten and played on the playground. Jesus of Nazareth. The one who was crucified. Physical, bodily death. Bled and died just a couple days earlier. He's been crucified. He was buried. His body was laying right there. Look, his body was placed there. See the place where they laid him? He's pointing to an actual place on the ground. Jesus' body was right there. I've actually been into one of these tombs from this time period, and there's kind of a large, larger room that you can walk in and stand in, and this would be the room where they would place the body until it decomposed, and then they take the bones and put them in a box and put it in one of kind of the separate rooms, usually a little smaller, sort of like a little cave or hole. And so imagine the angel just pointing and saying, that right there, that was where Jesus' body was laying. And some of the Gospels tell us there were grave clothes that were folded there. I love the way Luke's Gospel says it. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Right? He has risen. He is not here. A lot of commentators point out he has risen as a, as a passive. It's a divine passive, which might be more properly translated, he has been raised. Not just he has risen, he has been raised. God has raised him. Something miraculous has happened here. He is no longer here. Verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So the ladies are given a mission. Go tell the disciples. And notice they specifically call out Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Why? Several weeks ago we talked about the fact that Peter failed miserably. And perhaps he's thinking and maybe they're thinking he's done. He's been disqualified. But they specifically call him by name. I still got a plan for you, Peter. Go tell the disciples. Go tell Peter. I've been raised. 
and I'm going to go before him in Galilee, just like I told him back in chapter 14, verse 28, before all this happened, I told him I was going to go before them and meet them, tell them I will meet them there. And of course he will. We have the accounts that tell us he, he will and he does, and they see him and they talk with him and they touch him and they eat with him. It tells us what they eat. They eat boiled fish, right? They are fish cooked on the fire. They, they eat uh, fish, and, and this is going to be their message, by the way. What is the message of the apostles? Look at the preaching in Acts. What's their message? He appeared to us. That's it. He must be who he claimed to be because he died and rose again, and he appeared to us, and we ate with him and touched him. We have seen him. Therefore, he's the king. He is who he claimed to be. Therefore, you need to repent and believe and be baptized. That's the message of the apostles. That's the message of their preaching. He's the king. He appeared to us. We are eyewitnesses of this. You need to believe this. Take our word for it. You need to believe this and trust in him. Look at verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, if you have an English Standard Version, an ESV, which is the translation I'm reading from here, there is a note that comes right after verse 8. And it says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. And I actually sent you an email about this issue a little over a week ago. And I told you that I plan to stop at verse 8 and not go to verse 20. And I pointed you to a couple of articles, resources that explain a little more in detail of why. But let me just summarize really quickly now why I'm planning to stop at verse 8 and not go through the end of verse 20. Think about this. When Mark wrote his gospel, uh, he wrote it. There was an original copy. Think about that. An original copy of the gospel of Mark that, by the way, we don't have today. You can't go to a museum and see the original copy of Mark. But think about this. What was the goal? The goal was to get that copy out to churches and to people, right? Not to sit on it and hide it and tuck it away in a museum, but to get it out. So how do you do that? How do you send out copies to people? You go to the local coffee machine store and make a bunch of copies and then put them in the mail and mail them out. That's not an option. It included as an attachment to an email and email it out to everyone and everybody has a copy. That's not an option. What do you do? You get people to come in and hand copy it word for word. And so they do that. They take the original and they make copies. How many initially? I don't know. Let's just say hypothetically it's five. And then what do you do with those five? You send them out to churches and people and other places where Christians are meeting. And what do they do when they get their copy of Mark? Sit on it, hide it, put it in the museum. Copy it. Why? To send it out. Get the message out. So over time, what do you have? You have a bunch of copies of Mark. And we have access to many of those. And by the way, having a bunch of copies of, of the original gives us great confidence that we can know what the original was. So the more copies you have, the more confidence you have in what the original was. So it's not like there's a bunch of copies, therefore that makes me very pessimistic about the original. No, it's just the opposite. And by the way, in terms of copies, we have way more copies of the Bible than you do of any other ancient document. Why? Because it was so valued by Christians. So we have all of these copies. 
And one of the roles of biblical scholars is to take those copies and try to figure out which one most accurately reflects the original. That's the goal. And there's different rules that they use and principles that they follow. And one of the principles is this, and it makes total sense. You give value and weight to an earlier copy than you do a later copy. So if there's a copy that came about 50 years after the original and there's a copy that came about 200 years after the original, you're going to give a little priority to the, the oldest. And here's the point. The oldest manuscripts that we have don't include verses 9 through 20. And I, I want to make a little side comment. This is, there's, there's only a couple of places in the Bible where this is the case with long sections of Scripture. This is one of those places. Another one is John 8 with the woman caught in adultery. The, the, the earliest manuscripts don't include that story as well. But other than that, there's not any long sections where this is an issue. Most of the issue are questions of words. Like, is it the word your or is it the word our? And so my reason for saying that is this. This issue doesn't impact our theology. It doesn't impact our doctrine. So if you disagree with me and think it ends at verse 20, that's fine. No problem. Right? Uh, this is not a hill to die on. Uh, the main thing this impacts is if you're preaching through the Gospel of Mark, you've got to figure out where you're going to stop. And so it becomes very practical. Or you're leading a Bible study through Mark, where do you stop? And I have chosen to stop at verse 8. Now, I think it's helpful to ask this question. If the original stops at verse 8, why did someone along the way add verses 9 through 20? Let me read verse 8 to you again and ask yourself the question, why might someone or some church have added verses 9 through 20 after verse 8? Look at verse 8 with me. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The end. They were afraid. The end. Like, wait a minute, I thought this was the gospel of Mark supposed to give us great hope and faith and you just ended on they left the tomb and they were afraid. Now how are we supposed to think about that? And so some people think that it just left it too jarring. And so they added an ending very consistent and similar to the other gospel accounts that we have. Some people argue that Mark didn't intend for it to end here. He had plans to write more, but he didn't for whatever reason. Maybe he died, for example. That's one theory that's given. I think there's a lot of you know, speculation with that. I personally think it ends at verse 8 and he intended for it to. Let me share with you several reasons why I think this. Number one, Mark is shorter than the other Gospels. This is, we've seen this from the very beginning. From the very beginning, Matthew and Luke give us the Christmas narrative, the birth narrative. John gives us this great prologue. In the beginning was the word, the history of the, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the eternal Logos. Mark, he fast forwards all that and just jumps right into John the Baptist and we're off and running. And it's short. It's a short book. So that the fact that he would end it quickly at the end doesn't shock me at all, he doesn't give us much of the teaching of Jesus. It's the action. Jesus went here, did this, did that, and it's very short. Um, secondly, we have the other accounts that tell us what happened after this. And so we don't need it. We don't need Mark's account. We have the other accounts. So we have the full picture. But third, and this may be, I think, the strongest argument, this theme of fear and standing in awe and astonishment in front of Jesus is a major theme in Mark's gospel. I looked up this past week, how many times you see the word astonished? 
The answer is six times. The word amazed, seven times. Afraid, seven times. Trembling, twice. Terrified, twice. Fear, four times. And these are just instances where there is terror or fear before Jesus. And and now we get to the end and look at the words that are there. Alarmed, trembling, astonishment, afraid. And Matthew's Gospel also talks about this fear that they experienced as they left the tomb. Listen to Matthew 28, verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So Matthew tells us they left in fear, but they also left in joy. And so joy is certainly an element that's present. And it's the element that we often emphasize when we celebrate the resurrection. And rightly so. And in a few weeks when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to emphasize the joy that's associated with the resurrection. But Mark's gospel happens to emphasize the fear that is associated with the resurrection of Jesus. And therefore, because we want to be driven by the text and we want to emphasize what the text emphasizes, we emphasize this morning the fear that's a, a right response to the resurrection of Jesus. And we've seen this throughout Mark's gospel. Fear, astonishment in response to Jesus. Let me show you several instances. Turn, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. This is the story of Jesus calming the storm. We're going to go through several examples. I'm going to show you where the response is fear. The response to Jesus is fear. And I'm going to show you that pattern is consistent and it leads right up to the fear we see in chapter 16. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The Greek word for fear there is phobos, where we get our word phobia. It's the same word that's used to describe the women when they left the tomb. They were afraid. And I think it's really interesting, the fear that we see here with the disciples. Jesus, they're in the boat, in the storm, and they're afraid. Makes sense. Jesus speaks to the storm and calms it. There's a peace that comes over the, storm, over the sea. You'd think that their response would be, wow, now it's peaceful. But it doesn't say that that's their response. What is their response? It says they had great Fear. In Greek, it's the word mega. Mega fear. Wait a minute. Jesus just calmed it. You're now at peace. You just, you're now experiencing the peace of the creation. Why would you be greatly afraid after the storm was still? Fear before the storm makes sense. But then Jesus calms it and you're more afraid after than you were before? Why? Because they understand that they're standing in the presence of the one who is Lord over the creation. They just got a glimpse of it. Wow. And when you, stand, when you realize you're standing before the Lord over creation, it, it, a right instinct is a great fear. Even more fearful than being in the middle of a storm. Turn to Mark, uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 15. The story of the demon-possessed man. 
It says they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They weren't afraid when the man was possessed by the demon. That might make sense of when to be afraid. Jesus has cast the demon out. The demon is out of the picture. The man is sitting there fully clothed in his right mind, and they're afraid. Why? Because they're in the presence of the one who has authority over the demons. They're in the presence of the one who has authority over all spiritual powers, and they got a glimpse of it. And they're afraid. Look at Mark chapter 5, verse 33. The, the woman with the issue of the blood and the bleeding. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She's just been healed of this significant physical problem, health problem, she's had probably for a really long time. And Jesus just healed her. Wouldn't you think the main emotion would be joy and happiness? Instead, she responds with what? Trembling and fear. Why? Because she's in the presence of the one who has authority over disease and sickness. Wow. Look at uh, Mark 5, verse 42 the little 12-year-old girl who dies and Jesus brings back. Mark 5, verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. The word amazement here in the Greek is the word ecstasis. It's the same word that's used to describe the women as they leave the tomb. Ecstasis. It's where we get our word ecstatic. It's where we get our word ecstasy. It literally means to stand outside of oneself, to be removed from yourself, to stand outside of yourself. What is the response when Jesus raises this 12-year-old girl? The people, not, it doesn't say they rejoiced, it says they stood outside of themselves. Wow. The same response of the woman at the tomb when they learn that Jesus is not there. Look at Jesus, the story of walking on the water, chapter 6, verse 51. Keep in mind, they've already seen him speak to the storm and it, and it calms, so they know he's Lord over creation. Mark chapter 6, verse 51, he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. They'd just seen him walking on water and they're astounded. They didn't say, oh yeah, we know you can do that because you just spoke to the storm not too long ago and it obeyed you. They're astounded. They can't get used to it. He's the Lord over creation. Now, let me, let me show you one more example, and I think this might be the, the best example, the example that illustrates the point the most. Mark chapter 9, verse 5. The story of the transfiguration, when Jesus is transfigured before these three disciples. Mark chapter 9, verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. The Greek word there is ekphobos, uh, which, you know, phobos is not strong enough, afraid, so they put an ek in front of it and it becomes terrified. They were terrified. Why? They're seeing Jesus in his glorified state. Wouldn't you think maybe they would sit down and hold hands and sing Kumbaya? They're seeing Jesus. He's glorified. This is kind of like fast-forwarding and getting the, the future heavenly vision of Jesus. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be, you know, like they were, they worshiped. 
You know, they, they, they sing a song. They were terrified. They got a glimpse of the future glorified Jesus and it struck in them terror. And now you fast forward to Mark 16 and what these women are experiencing, I think, is very similar. They're getting a view. They're getting a picture of the resurrected Jesus. They're not seeing him physically. We get that account in other accounts. But they're, they're, they're putting it together. The tomb is empty. There's an angel. The angel is telling him, he's not here. The angel is telling him, he's going to appear to you again. And what's their response? What would you expect it to be based on the pattern we've seen in Mark? Their response is, they're alarmed. They tremble. They're astonished. They're afraid. Why? Because the resurrection highlights and emphasizes who he is. Who is he? He's the son of God. The centurion last week, we saw, truly this man was the son of God. He's God in the flesh. He's God come to earth. And therefore, he's Lord over everything. Lord over creation. Lord over storm. Lord over sickness. Lord over disease. Lord over death. Lord over everything. And if that doesn't cause you to experience a certain element of fear and a certain element of awe and a certain element of wow, then you don't get it. You don't get it. This is just kind of fun little stories that you tell your kids. If it doesn't cause you to have a certain terror, then you've become too, it's become too normal. You've become too used to it. It's become too routine. He didn't just come back from the dead. He conquered it. He defeated it. Death is no more. The curse that we are under, which is death because of our sin, has been solved because he conquered it. He is the king of kings. He is Lord over the grave. He's Lord over death. And the question for you and me this morning is this. Have you gone to him and bowed the knee before him? Have you gone to him and stood in awe of him and said, wow, when you come to see who Jesus is, it leads to a certain healthy fear and awe and wow and terror. And now it's not a fear that drives you away from him. If you're, if you're experiencing a fear that drives you away, you need to come back to what we talked about last week. Here's the Lamb of God dying on the cross for you to bring you in so that you can be adopted as God's sons and daughters. Wow. It's not a fear that drives you away. It's a fear that makes you run too. These women are afraid, but they're not running away from Jesus. These women are running to Jesus. There's a fear and a joy that leads them to Him. And so my encouragement to you this morning is make sure you experience a certain healthy fear in response to who He is, the resurrected King. And don't let it drive you to despair. Let it drive you to Him. Make sure you know Him as your Savior. Make sure you know Him as your King because He is the King. Let's pray. Father, we come to You recognizing that too often we are too flippant as we talk about Jesus, too lighthearted as we think about Him and who He is and what He's done. And so I just want to pause now and take a moment of silence and give everyone in the congregation here an opportunity to confess, to repent, and to just sit in awe of you.